Welcome to the Director Download, powered by Campus Rec Magazine. It's time to go behind the curtain of the director role and have honest discussions with leaders in the campus recreation industry. In this episode, host Grady Sheffield, the Director of Campus Recreation at Towson University and the Senior Advisor to the Campus Rec Mastermind Groups, gives you, the listener, real and authentic conversation between himself and special guest, George Brown the Assistant Vice Provost and the Director of University Recreation and Wellness at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. As they chat, Brown shares how he found his way from Trinity University to Minnesota, where he resides today. Through the years, he's learned the impact of Campus Rec is more profound than the campus community itself. Brown shares on the tornado that hit in 2011 and Campus Rec's role in shifting to serve the community by becoming a shelter. He also dives into how his team has bought into the purpose-driven experience. Finally, Brown shares the things he thinks aspiring assistant directors who want to get to the director level need to know. And if you're wondering what's next for Brown and how humility is the key to it all, tune into the conversation that follows. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Director's Download. I'm Grady Sheffield, your host. And today I'm joined by Dr. George Brown, Assistant Vice Provost and Director of University Recreation and Wellness at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. That's a mouthful, George. That's a a lot right there. So excited to have you, George. Thank you for joining us. Um, Let's just get right into it. So you graduated from Trinity University in 1982, correct? That is correct. That's a uh, that's a few millennia ago, I believe. Yeah, that is that is. Is that where you got your start in campus recreation? It absolutely is, Grady, uh, and, and thank you for having me on. I, I'm looking forward to our our discussion. Um, I did. I, I was like pretty much everybody who came out of campus rec at that time of year or came into campus rec. I was an ardent sports lover, anything and everything in high school and, uh, you know, not particularly great, certainly not varsity level, uh, even at a D3 school, but got exposed to an intramural program. And quite frankly, I'm glad you asked about Trinity because that's where I met the person that I think was absolutely most instrumental in my my career ascent to, to collegiate recreation and staying in it. And that was um, uh, affectionately referred to as Coach Jim Potter. Uh, he Jim recently passed away, but was a long, long time college ref, uh, college uh, recreation director at Trinity. He was synonymous with the program there. He believed completely in student development. He entrusted the program, for better or worse, to a bunch of 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. And we tried not to disappoint him, but it was an incredible experience working with largely your traditional campus intramural program at that time. But really getting exposed to so much there and just learning the ropes and um, really wet my appetite from there to go on to grad school and then on into the career. So grad school was at Miami University. That's correct. Miami of Ohio. Um, That was the furthest. I I was Southern born and bred coming out of uh, Memphis, Tennessee as a, a high school student and was raised on a, a liberal arts campus there in Memphis and sight unseen went to Trinity and graduated there in uh, 82. Immediately was fortunate enough, thanks again to Jim's help uh, landing and he had his contacts. I landed a incredible two-year graduate assistantship with, with two people in the field, um, Patty Holmes and Sally Myers, who were in the field. Oh. Yeah, and just another, again, you know, I was just – 
I just fell into the lap of good fortune because I was able to be around people who really molded my career and my understanding of higher ed and student affairs and campus rec and worked there until 84 and uh, was very fortunate then. That was the furthest north I'd ever been. What did you do uh, there? What was your assistantship? It was intramurals. Again, intramurals. I, I was okay. the, the sports guy and person. And I, you know, I really everything from team sports to individual sports. And boy, it was like an all-star lineup of people that I worked with, not only Patty and, and Sally, but some of the people that stayed in the field for quite a while that came out of that Miami experience. And that was a real pipeline. I what I didn't know until yeah. later, Grady, was that Jim Potter and and Sally and Patty had a a trusted relationship about sending students there and I was fortunate enough I guess not to muck it up too much because um, uh, from there I was able to get back to the south and get to Austin Texas for three years at UT Austin uh, working again almost completely in a large large school certainly the largest school that I'd worked to today uh, program worked with the likes of Tom Dyson and Eric Stoutner and Bob Childress and you know, it was just, again, uh, you know, I, I, it's a, it was a who's who of people to work yeah. with. Um, I almost, you know, I, I guess I could always screw it up, but thanks to these people, <laughs> they kept me, they kept me more or less on the right path. And, uh, you know, three years in Austin was a great experience and really looking to diversify from there. So was excited to get back closer to home in uh, 1987, uh, accepted the position as assistant director uh, for intramural sports and special events at that time at the University of Alabama. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, the thing I tell people all the time is I, you know, my mom and dad were childhood sweethearts in the state of Alabama. They, they met and they grew up, were born in Alabama. And so it was a homecoming, even though that wasn't really my home. And I told people, you know, Alabama's going to be a pit stop. You know, you know how it is. Three to five years, we all tell ourselves, "What's our time frame?" And yeah, twenty nine, thirty years later, I'm, I'm, I'm still saying, "Roll Tide!" There before heading to Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you bring up something that I think, if you're in this field, I think you've been, you've had a similar experience that you had. You know, somebody influenced you. The relationship that you built with that person gave you an opportunity to go somewhere else and do something where people had a relationship with the person who influenced you, so on and so forth. And it's just amazing to me that even today in 2023, it's the same as it was back then. I think it'll always be like that. And it's the foundation of, of our industry that it's relationship built, which I think is very telling for us. So it's pretty cool. Brady, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I want to, at this point, point in time really and I do believe that here in 2023 it is still that way but you couldn't be more correct about the fact that really the foundation for any level of of success or any effort to impact and influence people particularly in a field like ours where we are really constantly in and around other people if 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 you're not building relationships you're probably underrepresenting and underestimating what you could be doing in your particular mm. position. You know, I, I think many of us realize that as we've met and, you know, throughout our careers, we've, we've had the good fortune of people coming into our programs at, at our levels. Now as directors, we see really good people. And we, we mourn the people that leave the field for other, other vistas. And at the same time, I think that the common denominator is always going to be 
how genuine and authentic are we with the people around us? And I, I, I think that's what separates being in this position and really having a discernible impact in this position. Hmm. Well said. Yeah. So 29 years at the University of Alabama, you started out as an assistant director, worked your way up. I had the pleasure of getting to meet you um, during those middle years, I guess, or towards the end as a, I was seeking graduate assistantship, interviewed with you guys. But um, something, that's just a side note, but there's something that happened in 2011 that I, that I want to talk about. And it was a catastrophic and life-changing event for you guys with a tornado. How did that situation impact you as a director? Well, yeah, when you said 2011, I, there, there, there was there were two dates in there that I, I was figuring if you were going to go with a, a, a shaping or formative period, it would have been that or the period prior to that with um, with uh, Hurricane Katrina and the yeah. impact that that brought up along our coast. And Both of them, right? You know, yeah, you know from yeah. your association at Southern Miss how that how literally we they came up the interstate and 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 yeah. the people that were impacting there the tornado was well i mean it's surreal it, it still is and my wife and family we we you know we're we're now seven almost seven years removed from being in alabama and that is a seminal event for us because it 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 really showed first of all the the, the tornado came less than a mile from the doorstep of the campus record, the student recreation center there in Tuscaloosa. So as we were huddled down in sheltered areas, and we, we all did our drill and, you know, went, went down there, got the patrons that were in the building on that day in April. And, uh, you know, we waited it out. We had power. We were listening to a meteorologist who everybody in the deep South knew. And, 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 you know, it would, you just, held on every you, you hung on every breath there about what he was saying about the events that were unfolding and how this was a large swath tornado as we lost power and didn't know we kind of came up from the from the locker rooms the areas there sort of peeking out to see what was the extent of what was going on and we were immediately confronted with the uh people who were literally walking in because it was so close some were bleeding, some were, you know, injured. And we knew right then and there, Grady, that at that moment, everything that we had been and what we were was changing. Mm. Uh, we didn't know necessarily for how long or what it would be. Our building, thankfully, was relatively unscathed. There was tree damage around it. We had a large glass exposure and expression around the building and fortunately didn't incur damage there. But we knew just up the hill, less than a half a mile away, ironically, right near a hospital uh, in, in the Tuscaloosa area, that people were literally walking in, seeking refuge, seeking shelter, seeking medical care. So we 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 triaged almost immediately. We got a hold of our, our colleagues in the medical school and let people know from the, from the health center and from anywhere and everywhere that, that we could get first responder care that we were seeing injured in here. And then from those days, Grady, I think just about like everybody who's ever experienced a changing event like that, we shifted. I, I can't really state how well. I know we did the best we could. We became a shelter. We became a drop zone for food and items. Uh, we immediately mobilized much of the West Alabama Tuscaloosa community. And in the, in the midst of that, you know, this is kind of what we do in a crazy, weird kind of way. We yeah. try to maintain being a student recreation center. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, we we were approaching the end of the semester. I mean, finals were canceled. There was a lot of wise decisions on the part of the administration. 
you know, I'll never forget that, you know, uh, important people matter. Nick Saban and some of his coaching staff were in the building within 24 hours and they were checking on things. They were seeing what they could do to mobilize donations and spearhead any kind of relief efforts to get things out to the community because some of the community could not come back in. But, you know, again, to go back to your question about what does that mean? I think it means that you are far greater that your mission will always be to serve, but the definition of whom you're serving and how probably changed forever. And, and it was life-shaping because, again, that and the Katrina events from earlier, you realize that, that as much as we serve our campus communities, whether at Towson or Alabama or Minnesota or wherever, <clears throat> we're really serving mm -hmm. the greater good. And, yeah. and I know to, to the people listening on here, I hope you really pause and realize that your impact is so much more profound than just the campus community. And we should never forget that. Yeah, well said. So I was going to ask you how or in what way is that event still impacting you today in your current role? Yeah, you know, we... I mean, it's probably similar to what you just said, but yeah, you know, COVID, I think fast forward to COVID here in, in 20 to, to 22, you know, early 23. I, I mean, I, I think you realize really quickly that we do not live in a vacuum, that we, we that, that the events of what we do, as much as we are, and you know, I know people, particularly those early in your career, you're, you're really sort of your doctrine is to serve those to whom fund what you do. And for most of us, whether it's tuition allocation, student fee appropriation, whatever it is, I, I, I'm not suggesting we don't dance with that drum. I, I, I would respectfully say that your reach, your power to impact, your ability to serve is far greater. I, I, I'll give you an example. I, Minnesota here, I, I was very fortunate at leaving Alabama. I watched the incredible growth and now the stable environment of an adaptive sport and recreation program there that, in fact, was so successful, led by demonstratively two people uh, in that program that that have worked their entire careers in wheelchair sports and adaptive recreation. They were able to build a self-sustaining facility that is linked to the current student recreation center there. When I left Alabama in um, 2016 and came up here to Minnesota, I knew that that's something that I wanted to do because I've, again, it wasn't to build a dynasty or a legacy or my, you know, my signature at all. This was because it was the right thing to do. And it, it's been interesting. It's, it's been a little slower in doing what it could do at Minnesota because of the decentralized nature of this campus. But again, I think to, to get to your question about how does it inform your practice, it makes you again, realize that even in the midst of a pandemic or trying to put together a program that heretofore has not occurred in the Twin Cities, you're you're sort of called to do that. I, I, look, I, you know, I, I'm the son of a Presbyterian minister, so I know all about the supposed callings. And I really do believe that I've stayed in this field and quite frankly enjoyed being in this field because it is more of a calling than a career or a job. And, and yeah. I think that as you do that, and I... I sense there are other people, maybe people listening on this call or people that you've talked to in other of these podcasts that, you know, really do feel a call to do this. And I, yeah. I don't know. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that at all. Yeah. So you brought up leaving Alabama in 16, and I was going to ask you why you left, but I think you kind of answered it in terms of 
wanting to do something else at a different place, a calling, if you will. But how did you know it was time for you to do that? Yeah, you know, that I think that's always going to be a question that my family, we, we, you know, we certainly we made a commitment when we when we decided to pursue and land the, the, the Minnesota job. It was a great opportunity. I was recruited by an incredible vice president of student affairs at that time. She, Dr. Danita Brown Young, has since moved on to uh, a, that similar role at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Uh, Danita is is amazing. She's a visionary. She she saw so many things in the way student affairs can inform and serve students and the greater community. And uh, quite frankly, just like with Jim Potter or Bob Childress or Sally Myers or Patty Holmes or, or you know, I, I, good people wanting to be around good people is, you know, is, is something mm-hmm. that has always attracted me. And so that was definitely a, a, an attractive feature of making the decision to pursue Minnesota. Yeah, I think. I think 29, 30 years at Alabama, the, the road, I, I will look back at Alabama forever and ever. I will always be an Alabama person. I got a, my doctoral degree there. I have an affinity. I, I believe in what Roll Tide stands for and the tradition and just that spirit of campus. Um, you know, I, I still root for the teams and follow them in any manner of sports and activity. Many of my best friends and social media are still connected that way. I did not leave Alabama to leave Alabama. I The Minnesota opportunity was uh, an opportunity to expand in an area that when I got my doctoral degree in 2010 at Alabama, that was in uh, health promotion and health education. I knew then that not only the field, but my ability to impact the field was very much in that lane. And I, I certainly believe that Alabama can, does, and will always have health and well-being within its recreation, its university recreation program. But I think it was perhaps a little bit more articulated and more pronounced at Minnesota. And it afforded me an opportunity to jump into a lane where the 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 recreation department already had wellness in it and already had a pretty substantial influence. What I learned when I got here, interestingly, was it was a little bit dormant. Um, mm. we, we like to refer to it. What happened at Minnesota was with the opening of the 2013 grand expansion of the um, recreation and wellness center, they had leaned decidedly more with staffing towards recreation. And I think they were leaning a little bit more to the traditional intramural sport club. Uh, They had a very strong uh, center for outdoor adventures program, but I felt like there was an opportunity in the position and with my title of assistant vice provost that I could actually come in and maybe with some of the things that I had recently picked up through my doctoral pursuit, um, some ways to navigate a little more pronounced health and well-being opportunities. I think most importantly, Grady, the opportunity at Minnesota was to be a conduit for a lot of the departments, both within student affairs and external around health and well-being. I will say that's a work in progress still today. Uh, COVID sure. probably slowed some of that rhythm. Um, but it didn't didn't stall it. But I think the opportunity there to round out where I think uh, campus recreation is a vital player. I I, I know you're heavily invested in this at Towson. Um, as, as many of my colleagues that are in this field are seeing, we play a incredibly important role in the health and well-being of the community that we serve. And I think we can do that through some very interesting avenues beyond just a traditional sport and recreation model. 
Yeah. So let's touch on that for a minute. Um, tell me about your thoughts on health and well-being as a right and how that plays into the way you lead in your role as assistant vice provost and the director of rec. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, gosh, if, if, if the events of the pandemic didn't accentuate it, I'm not sure what could we, we, we have known in our American society, I think within higher education, as much as we would probably not like to admit it, there is a gap or a disparity within what people's ability to attain things, whether it's the education gap, the affordability gap, and we saw the rise now of what we call the health and health and well-being gap. And seeing that accentuated through the pandemic uh, and the opportunities that that even in our areas of higher education, where we were seeing people, quite frankly, who who were not feeling they could get into or be a part of a health experience, being in a campus rec center, accessing counseling services, as we see the growing mental health challenges, or even simple clinical uh, um, um, uh, access through health centers. Um, This really struck me that in our field, specifically in collegiate recreation, we have a, 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 again, I use the word calling carefully here. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think there is an inalienable right to being healthy and to having access to health and care and and to things that both uh, serve in reactive models, but maybe more importantly in a preventive model. I don't think there are any places in a higher education landscape where we can do more upstream prevention than what we're doing in a collegiate rec place. And if you'll allow me, I will explain exactly what I think has been sort of the genesis of that. I think that because my career now is, you know, I'm certainly playing the the later back nine of my career. I would say <laughs> that, um, uh, and I'm over par too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I I would say that what really got many of us in there was the movement industry, and that that we saw the the grand expansion of physical activity and exercise and the prescription of exercise. And I think that the jury is is returned the verdict that collegiate recreation plays in an undisputable, uh, indisputable mm-hmm. uh, in physical activity and movement. Then a funny thing happened about, I would say probably eight to 10 years ago. This was probably not too far past the time I was at Alabama and looking at and finishing my doctorate and really wanting to apply that. I, I saw what we're all seeing now played out and how much the role of physical activity and movement then can inform mental health and well-being and how, you know, everything from the release of endorphins to the 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 simple act of 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 clearing one's head and getting oneself right, whether it's from movement or just getting out and, and being in fresh air, being outside, we saw how much that informed mental health. Then I think that the most interesting movement in my career has come in the last five to six years, and the and the pandemic really did drive this one. And that is the incredible, and I believe maybe the most powerful piece of what collegiate recreation can play not only in a higher education setting, but more societally. And that is the social well-being. And that is the sense of connection. That's the sense of recognizing the incredibly strong sense of connection, of purpose and belonging, and, and the, the negative impacts of loneliness and isolation. I, I personally think when you talk about rights and privileges, if we're not exercising the inalienable right that everybody should have to being connected 
And I realize, Grady, really, really, I, I want to say here that I understand that not everybody comes in to be social butterflies in campus rec centers. They're not going to meet their best friends, although many people do. They're not necessarily from a work experience going to meet those significant others, although many have. <laughs> you know, we all know that. We all yeah. know the power of these, these relationships that are fostered. Well, if we're talking about rights and privileges, there should never be a privilege that one should be able to pursue their connection or their purpose or their growth where there is a chasm between the haves and the have-nots. And I think one of the things, and I've, I've, I've talked about this a lot in the years with NURSA and, 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 and all of that, that I think we underestimate our role in being purveyors of social connection, of really making a difference in people's lives. And again, going back to things like tornadoes and Katrina and persevering through pandemics, as much as we all will want to remember the intramural champions of 2006 or that incredible backpacking trip in 2013, what really matters is the more simple things of making a connection and making a difference in people's lives. And I think we need to really pause and reflect on that and build our missions around that because that that's going to be the the compelling why as to why campus recreation programs in the you know we're in the we're now into the first quartile and moving into the second quartile of this millennium and i yeah. think if we're talking about justifying our existence it's going to be around that sense of connection that sense of purpose and i would really respectfully challenge my colleagues to really lean into and double down on that as your purpose this episode is brought to you by Campus Rec Mastermind Groups. These groups are created as a space for executive directors and directors to present questions and challenges you are faced with in your position so you can leverage the power of your peers to help you succeed. It's a leadership accountability group that provides immediate professional development based on your specific challenges as a leader. Interested in learning more? Email Heather at peakmedia.com, peak spelled P-E-A-K-E. So I was going to I was going to bring up the fact that, you know, you and I had kind of a conversation before we started this session and about COVID's impact and how it's been one of the biggest challenges uh, for you as a director, for all of us as directors. And you've talked about new inspections that it's created on our industry. And I was going to ask you to tell me more about what you mean by that, but I think you just did in terms of how you answered that. And I'm wondering if if one if if the inspection that you're talking about of looking at what our value is and what you just described is that what you mean in terms of changing changing what we're charged to provide to our campus communities yeah and i don't know that it's really a change how the the funny thing is i think we've been doing this for decades on you know the right. people the, the people that came before us the landscape by which we were asked to provide service for our campus community was was very much along movement and activity and <laughs> the relationship with the mind and body and, and, and all of that we you know we 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 read the data we heard we built beautiful wonderful facilities around the end of the turn of the century and 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 we're still very much benefiting from those today 
And, and so I don't know that that's changed. We still provide that, you know, whether it's hundreds or thousands of daily entrants, depending on the size of our school, our relationship to other areas of you know, whether it's student affairs or academics or athletics, wherever our alignment is, all of that is still incredibly important. And I, I would not dismiss that. Or, you know, there are some people who I think, particularly those colleagues of mine that are maybe approaching retirement and think, you know, so much has changed. I don't know. I don't know that it has. I think the means by the vehicle by which we can make an impact on the people we serve has changed. We clearly know that people are influenced differently. The advent of social media and technology has made our jobs in many respects easier, but it's also made it a little bit more challenging because of the competition. I don't think that that people are dramatically different in what they seek. I do think the challenges of higher ed are real. The affordability is real. I think that the, the value proposition of higher education today is much more scrutinized than it was 15, 20 years ago, largely driven by economics. Um, but at the same time, what we deliver, what the people in our field deliver on day in, day out, night in, night out, has really not changed. It is really about the whole person, the whole relationship. And I think you hit it right there when you said the development of purpose. Um, you know, we all can, we all benefit from listening to a lot of different educate. We read, we hear podcasts. There's a numerable number of really learned, talented uh, TED Talks around the idea of purpose uh, and growth and autonomy. And we talk about that a lot in terms of keeping our labor force uh, intact is, is, you know, we can't just merely roll out. Well, you know, this is a job and you're going to be here three to five and you're going to move to the next. It doesn't work linearly that way anymore. You really do. Have Some of to, us want it to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And I think that's very interesting. I, I think we're going to have to reconcile that from a work and labor standpoint, we will never be the same anymore. I, I do think COVID drove that home, that the labor force today, the people who want to go into this field, first of all, I don't think there is any typical way to get in this field anymore. I think the right. avenues in come from outside of recreation and, and, and help. I think they come from park and recs. I think they come from business. I think <laughs> they come from arts and sciences. I come from engineering. Like a lot of really talented people coming out of the HR organizational management structure. I think what has to happen now, not only to attract people to participate and also for people to work in this field is going to be absolutely completely being transparent about what is your purpose? What do you want? And meeting people where they are. You know, the, the classic interview of a campus rep person was always, where do you see yourself and what will you offer here and what kind of things will you come in once you get yourself settled? And we we absolutely ignored the other side of the street, which was to ask the question, what are you expecting from us? Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that's the question that needs to be posed is as you come into this field, either as an entry level or moving up within your career or, or looking to a director position, which there's going to continue to be these as we see retirements come more more pronounced. I think the, the pivotal question will be, what do you expect from the organization? And I think at the end of the day, it's always going to be a purpose-driven experience. 
And I think we need to be prepared to think about what is the purpose of what we do to the people, not only that participate, but also the people who work within our organization. How do you get your teams at Minnesota to buy into that idea? We're very fortunate with the leadership team is, is I inherited a team that I've only replaced one person since I've been here seven years. So in many respects, we have we have a legacy and we have a little bit of a leadership team. That also poses a little bit of a challenge as we're going to be moving towards some really pronounced succession planning here in the next probably one to three years, I would say. Um, the buy-in is, I think you have to be extremely authentic and genuine. Um, the BS detector is very pronounced and people will absolutely know when you are selling them a bag of goods that you quite frankly really can't, can't back up. I think you have to show the product that you're willing to be adaptive to the change that you're another thing. Again, going back to COVID, what are the lessons learned? One of the most powerful lessons learned on our campus. And I, I don't, I don't know it. Towson or other places, whether this is true, we learned that where work occurs is less important than how and what work gets done. And so while we are very much in a people-centric business of being there, particularly for our students, we've learned, and I think this is something I applaud about Minnesota, we've learned we can do business in non-traditional ways, working from remote, working with flex hours, working with different kinds of shift configurations, and again, I think this goes back to the question of buy-in occurs. I think employees today, staff in particular in our field, really, I think they buy in when they know it's authentic, when they know that you are willing to adapt, you are willing to change. Because again, if everybody in the organization was almost 40 years in the field, that would be a dramatically different paradigm. But they're not. The vast majority of people in our field are 15 years or less, quite frankly, backloaded 10 years or less. Mm -hmm. And so what attracts them, what motivates them, what inspires them to do their work, what drives their purpose? Again, I think to, to get that buy-in, you have to listen. You have to adapt. Sometimes you have to course correct. Um, again, your point about, you know, people kind of wanting to stay in that lane, that traditional lane, I, it, that, that's a really tricky one to get people who've been in that lane for most of their career to see the change uh, and be the change. Uh, but I think the, the 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 generation that's now influencing our industry requires that that flexibility. And I I will and I, I will move to the end of my career, but I, I hope that I will move the end of my career knowing that I remain flexible and adaptive because I really think that's the only way to get the buy in. So I was going to ask you the question and bring this up. Sometimes directors, even myself, sometimes look to solve problems in a vacuum or with the cookie cutter approach. And I think it kind of relates to what you're saying about. I'm going to have this timeline. It's going to take me two years to go from an assistant director to associate director, and then I'm going to be a director and it's going to be all good. How does that make you feel when you see that or you hear that from directors or even other team members that we got to do it this way? We got to, you just talked about being flexible, but that's the nature of our industry is cut and dry, right? Or it has been. It has been. And, and old habits die hard. And I don't, I don't necessarily think they should die. I think we all just, we, you know, the dinosaurs didn't adapt very well. And we know what happened with them. 
you know, yeah. and I, I, I think we all, we all have to confront that moment, Grady, that you mentioned where we look at the linear progression versus the reality of the, of the field and the environment. And, and I do believe that you're absolutely right on in saying that what we've been indoctrinated to believe is that there is a certain timeline to which people move through this field and they impact change and difference. Um, I would uh, I would respectfully challenge that and push back on that by the events of two and a half to three years of a global pandemic that none of us ever foresaw. I, I, I would say that in that period, we all learn that there is absolutely no linear cookie cutter approach anymore, that people come, people go, you hang on, you progress three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes four steps back. And, you know, it's if, if there's anything that this instills in our field, I would hope it's humility. <laughs> I would really hope that we would have the humility to realize that what worked to get us to the age of credibility and where we are today, and we should all be very proud of the station that we are all in today with our respective campuses and institutions. Hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, perseverance, uh, a lot of give and take, a lot of political negotiation to do, because inherently our field has always been questioned for. Now, what do y'all do? You know, yeah. my, 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 my parents, you know, mine still do. Yeah, yeah my, my my 90 something year old mom still doesn't understand why I'm not, you know, doing what I'm doing with the athletic department and what's going yeah. on up there with the Gophers. And I keep reminding her that's not where I work. Um, you know, I. It's a hard enough field to get your arms around and understand and explain elevator speech or not, I think it then really demands that we take the approach that this cookie cutter approach is passe and archaic at this point, because we are seeing such a change in what motivates people to want to engage in what we do. There is such a sea change of people coming in or leaving this field. Um, and I don't think we should be complaining about this. I, I would respectfully tell my colleagues, don't look at this as a bad thing. I, I, tradition is tradition, but innovation is what really fuels the future of tradition. And, and I, I, I think if we can get past what was and how well it worked, there will be a kind of an epiphany of what can be. And, and I think that's, for me at this point in my career, it's very liberating. And I am always going to default to trusting that the next generation of people is smarter than the previous. And so they're going to do things in a much more creative, perhaps more effective, certainly more efficient way. And, I, and I, I'll i stand on the sidelines and yay team to that. I, I, I do think that from the standpoint of saying goodbye to the past and moving forward, one has to be able to let that go. And I think, honestly, Grady, that's surrounding yourself with people who know how to push that along and do that respectfully. I know people in my my cohort who object to the generation that says they know everything but want to be told how to do it. And <laughs> I, I, I laugh at that simply because it's true. But at the same time, it's a call to action for us to share and show because that's what got us here. And I would respectfully submit that Jim Potter and Bob Childress and Patty Holmes and Sally Myers all did that for me. So. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So with over 40 years of experience, you've seen and done a lot. What do you say to the aspiring assistant associate director who wants to get to the director level? What do they need to know? Yeah, <clears throat> they got to be humble. I, I, again, I think humility is such an important trait. They've got to be incredibly resourceful listeners. Um, they've got to be adaptive, nimble, flexible. Um, I'm gonna I, I, I'm gonna tell you one thing that I think may be the absolute, if not the most important trait. It's one of them. You you've got to you've got to have a sense of humor. You really do. You have got to be able to realize the lap of good fortune you're in and how much fun this is and how wonderful it is. And in the midst of the worst negotiations on your campus and budget cuts and political whims of fate and folly, you have to be able to smile, laugh, perhaps be self-deprecating about it. I found that a lot of my humor is around the fact of knowing what I don't know and trying to do that. You know, those those spots where you do not have a full appreciation for what you do, you need to accentuate. I think because we're in higher ed, Grady, I think lifelong learning is incredibly important. Um, you know, drink from the cup because the cup will get refilled. Be a sponge to knowledge and change. Um, be respectful of what position you're in as an assistant or associate director. Uh, I don't mean that to be, you know, bowing an homage. I mean that more to be respectful, be humble, yeah. uh, know that things that I think it's very important for a young professional not to always absolutely unequivocally know why what happened happened. Sometimes it's best to understand it happened. And, and, how do I move and navigate from that place that we find ourselves in? It may not be the best place, but to criticize and question relentlessly, I think that can be rather toxic. I think that assistant associate directors should absolutely be mindful and ever vigilant of culture. Um, I think that understanding right and privilege, uh, whether that's in any area of access to higher ed or to campus rec or well-being, uh, and recognize that there is a a population of people who, quite frankly, have never enjoyed that right and see it as more of a privilege. And how do we close that gap? Uh, and we need to do that authentically. Um, you know, I again, walk humbly. I, I just I can't get past the idea that to build a relationship, one has to present themselves in a way that genuinely says, I don't know everything, but I care about you. And I believe in the greater good of what we're doing to the point where I want to listen and I want to learn. And I think until the day you end your, your career and this field or whatever your chosen path is, you should always have that sense of humility and respect for what you do. Well said. So my last question for you, what's next? What's next for you? Yeah, I, I I kind of thought maybe that was coming here, um, and that's a very fair and appropriate question. I I think what's next is I think it's, it's secession planning. I I think mm -hmm. you know leaving it quote better than you found it, and that's hard because sometimes you're in a position of strength wherever you are at. Alabama or Towson or Minnesota or anywhere. 
I, I, I think being able to look to landscape and the people around you and, and feel like they're well prepared for the uncertainties, you know, again, COVID drove home a lot of things. And one of the things that I hope the lesson learned is we should not take for granted that the next difficult situation that's out of our control could be just around the corner. How well are we preparing our people, both our participants and our, our staff to be citizens for good? Uh, I, I think it's, yeah, I think what's next now, honestly, is that doubling down on a culture that says we make a difference, we are important, we do play a role in benefiting the life of the people that we interact with. And that's important. And that we can rest our heads and, 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 and lay down and say, you know, we've done good, but yeah. never rest so much to the point that we're not ready for the next challenge the next day. I, I think what's next for me now is shoring up to the degree of certainty that, that will be allowed that, that the University of Minnesota um, Recreation and Wellness Program, Student Affairs, that my little corner of the universe within this large institution in the Twin Cities, that we're doing everything we can to serve people in a way that they will look back on this period of time in their life and it will inform what they're doing positively for the rest of their life. I don't think that's, I don't think that's trite or melodramatic. I think it's real. And I think that that, for me, that's what's next in however very period of time that's left. And I have no idea what that is, but um, I hope in that period of time I can make that impact. Well, George, it has been a pleasure to have you on the director download today. What an incredible journey you've had. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and experiences with us. I know that the listeners will get something out of this, no doubt, no doubt. So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, sir. Very much appreciated, Grady. Always good to talk to you. And uh, I hope everybody who's listening did get something out of it. And hope you guys have a great, wonderful day. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Yeah, thank you, everybody. That's it for this edition of Director's Download. We'll see you next time. <laughs>